You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Moe Gamer podcast. I'm Pete Davison from moegamer.net and as always I'm joined by my good friend Chris Kasky from mrgilderpixels.com. Hi Chris, how are you doing? Good Pete, how are you today? I'm cold, but uh, yeah, yeah. That. Are you guys are you guys getting rocked by this business too? This polar vortex business. Well, um, <laughs> rocked is is a bit relative when we talk about uh, what is actually happening to the states in terms of temperature. Like we're getting down to like minus two and minus three, and we're like, whoa, it's the end of the world. And then we got friends in the states who, who send us screenshots of like, oh, hey, where we are, it's minus twenty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was talking to my ex-wife. She lives in Toronto. And she said it was minus twenty-two on yeah. Wednesday. On Wednesday, oh, it's it's crazy. It's, it's, certain areas just seem to go by extremes. Like my my brother used to live in Chicago, and that was really nice in the summer, and an absolutely nightmarish, apocalyptic hellscape in winter. Oh yeah, Chicago is quite quite bad right now. I think there's actually a state of emergency or something. Yeah, like you're not supposed to go outside. It's like. It, I, I heard like instant frostbite is a threat or something. Like if you're not covered up. Yeah, yeah. It puts it in perspective when I complain about having to scrape my car in the morning. At least <laughs> we did- <laughs> we did get some snow the other day. Not quite enough to get us off work, unfortunately. But we did have we did have a little bit of snow for a, a few hours, and then it, yeah. then it stopped. And it was very very British weather. It just sort of went. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> Neither hot nor serious. cold. Yeah. Just lukewarm. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Uh, we've got a hopefully great episode for you today in which we say death to Metroidvania. Um, more on that later. Um, first of all, before that, we're going to use our usual first couple of segments in which we're going to talk about the news first. Then we'll take a short break, talk a little bit about what we've been playing recently, and then move on to that main topic. So uh, consider that a teaser. So, as far as news goes, um, I just wanted to start with uh, some stuff that is actually going on right now as we are recording this, which is the Final Fantasy XIV FanFest. Um, there is a whole bunch of news coming out about that. Um, and uh, as always, uh, Nova Crystallis, the, the fan site and Twitter account, um, has got a ton of information on it. So I'm pulling most of my information from there. So if you want to find out more, they've got a really good write-up and summary of what's happening. So basically, the, the, the FanFest, if you're unfamiliar, is an event that goes on a few times a year in different places around the globe. I think they do they do one in America, one in Europe, one in Japan uh, each year. And generally, those are the places where they tend to reveal uh, new details about the upcoming expansions and patches and such like. And so with uh, the new expansion Shadowbringers coming along later this year, um, this is sort of the first real concrete details we're getting on the, um, what are we on? The third expansion now, Shadowbringers. So, uh, yeah, first of all... Has even two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so Shadowbringers is coming out on July the 2nd. They've confirmed the release date now. Uh, there will be an early access period, as usual, for people who pre-order. Uh, pre-orders for it will begin on February the 6th. Uh, so in a few days time uh, or shortly after you hear this uh, you should be able to pre-order it and that will guarantee you early access as well as the usual few in-game goodies as well like minions and and stuff like that Um, so the details for the expansion that have been revealed so far uh, they're bringing in one new job 
which is a new tank class called Gunbreaker. Uh, and they wield uh, Final Fantasy VIII-style gunblades. Yeah, this looks really cool. This would yeah. make me want to tank, finally. Normally, yeah. I'm, like, averse to tank classes, but this looks cool as hell. Yeah. Um, so, at, at the moment, Final Fantasy XIV has got three tank classes. It's got Paladin, which is uh, very much sort of um, uh, mitigating damage as much as possible. You've got Warrior, which is sort of maintaining aggro by doing a, a, a decent amount of damage and having a lot of hit points. And you've got Dark Knight, which is sort of kind of somewhere in between. I, I haven't played Dark Knight since they revamped it for um, for Stormblood, but uh, certainly in, in Heaven's Ward when it was introduced, uh, it sort of had like a lot of status effects and damage over time and that sort of thing. So it was it was quite a complex pl- class to play, but it was it was a really satisfying one when you got it right. So uh, Gunbreaker, um, there are gun blades in Final Fantasy XIV already uh, for the enemies, like the the Garlean Empire, who is sort of one of the main. Uh, antagonistic forces in the game uh, they they've been using gunblades for quite a while at this point but the they specifically pointed out that the the gunbreaker's gunblade is slightly different to those and they're specifically designed to be like um, squalls in final fantasy 8 um, so uh, it will start at level 60 um, and has no associated class so you don't need to level it right from one that's that seems to be the pattern they're going with most of the new classes at this point um, aside from blue mage which is a, a special case um their main resources they use magic ammunition that enhances the damage uh, and so the main resource they spend is these different types of ammunition that will do different things presumably uh, and you can play through the whole of the expansion as gunbreaker if you want to but obviously you'll have to get it from 60 to 70 before you'll be able to start that so a bit of grinding before you do that uh beyond that they've revealed a couple of new areas uh so is the there is the raktika greatwood uh which is a new foresty area um, unlike the previous foresty areas around Gridania, which was in the original Realm Reborn, you can fly in this one, uh, and you fly under the tree canopy. It's like a really huge forest that the, the the actual canopy of the trees is so high up, you can actually fly underneath it. Oh, that sounds really neat. Uh, and then there's Ilmeg, which is the Realm of Pixies, which is a very sort of uh, fantasy-themed area. Um, kind of looks like it's taken a bit of sort of um, almost Tolkien- um ideas from it looking at sort of the um the sort of houses for the pixies that are built into the sides of hills and stuff like that and lots of arches and curved lines and that sort of thing so that looks really cool Uh, apparently they've come up with a whole new language for the pixies as well called fey um so that should be interesting to find out uh other stuff um they're putting in a trust system uh, which is a bit different to Final Fantasy XI. In Final Fantasy XI, what you could do is you could basically collect NPCs uh, in a sort of um, sort of collectible catalogue type thing, and then you could recruit those NPCs to play alongside you. It was basically a means of um, allowing people to still play the game while the player count was sort of dwindling off and tailing off because they've, they've they finished doing sort of uh, active updates to Final Fantasy XI now, but people still obviously want to play the content. So uh, by having computer-controlled characters in there um, through this trust system, it allows people to to do that. Um, in 14, the trust system is mainly geared at the story dungeons for the new expansion. Uh, and so you'll be able to party with characters like Thancred and Ishtola and uh, Midphilia 
to to challenge the Shadowbringers story dungeons, uh, which is one interesting possible solution to the issue that uh, Final Fantasy XIV story dungeons have always had, which is people want to rush through them, they want to skip the cutscenes, all that sort of thing. So if you do it with the ac- with the actual characters of the game rather than other players, then you don't have to worry about that because you're just fighting alongside them. So as long as they get the AI right, um, that should be pretty cool. Can we please port this back to the entire game to the very beginning <laughs> so I can go and enjoy Final Fantasy? fantasy 14 story like it's a single player game because i desire this greatly they're experimenting with a few things there's already a system in place uh called squadrons uh where you can um sort of level up a bunch of of recruitable characters um these are just sort of random npcs rather than story npcs and you can already run some dungeons with them not all of them i don't think but some dungeons you can certainly run with them uh, but I have a feeling you actually have to get to at least level 50 before you can start doing that, I think. Uh, I haven't looked into it for a while, but yeah, it'd be good if, it would be good if, if, they, if they brought this back throughout the rest of the game. And per- perhaps they will. Um, so if this ends up working well for um, Shadowbringers, they may well bring it back through the rest of the game. Um, alongside that, another interesting bit of news is they're, they're adding a new game plus mode. Uh, which is not something I've seen an MMO do before. But what this means is that you can replay the whole main story, all your job quests, all of the um, sort of... Uh, po- well, you'd call them post-game quests in a normal RPG, but sort of after the conclusion of the of the base game story and the various expansions. So you'll be able to take your current level, your current gear, and go back and replay all this stuff and basically wipe the floor with everything. So that should be quite fun. Um, which in theory means that if you've forgotten how the story goes, you can go back to the beginning with your super buff item level 380 character or whatever and and just play through and enjoy the story. But you will have to have done it once already to Mm -hmm. enjoy that, if you see what I mean. A couple of other bits of news. Uh, They are finally adding Viera as a playable race, which has been uh, requested for a long time. Um, Teased in the last... A uh, couple of raids in which uh, Fran from Final Fantasy XII put in an appearance in cutscenes. I just watched the video. I got goosebumps. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I am pro Viera. Yeah, so to the, say the least. Uh, so the the Viera, their starting gear is basically Fran's outfit, uh, and then from there, um, yeah, presumably they'll, they'll have all the all the different types of, of gear available to them. Um, but yeah, they start their starting outfit is uh, is is just just Fran's gear. Uh, so you, you, if you want to run around the whole game dressed as Fran, you'll be able to use the Glamour system to do that. Uh, also, the next 24-player raid is going to be near-themed. Are you still there? I am. <laughs> Was that just stunned silence? No, um, I just don't care about raids. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> you basically just said, here's cool content that you won't have fun experiencing anyway. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, the 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 twenty-four player raids are the more sort of casual side of raids in that they're you've got so many people there that it doesn't matter so much if you're not playing absolutely perfectly. It's just designed to be large-scale content, so it's it's sensible that they've done this as the twenty-four player ones rather than mm. the eight-player ones. Um, it also, it I mean, it seems that they pretty much from the beginning they've been wanting to make the twenty-four player raids as as the sort of main way that they reference other games. Because the A Realm Reborn ones all reference Final Fantasy III. Uh, in Heavensward, they were... What were they in Heavensward? Um, they were... I completely forgot. What was it? Hmm. 
Oh well, uh, obviously they left a huge impact on me. Um, and and then the most recent ones have been uh, Evilis. So you've been going through sort of various uh, Final Fantasy twelve and Final Fantasy Tactics locales. So um, they they are on the more accessible, casual side, but obviously you do still have to play alongside other people. But yeah, the new twenty four player raid cycle is uh, called Yorha Dark Apocalypse. Um, it's it's being handled by uh, Yosuke Saito and uh, Yoko Taro, both of whom who are um, sort of key players in it, both Nier and Dragon Quest X they've both worked on, or I think Saito's worked on Dragon Quest X and so on. Um, the promotional artwork makes it look like um, 2P, which is the alternate colour scheme from Soul Calibur is sort of taking a leading role uh, to be sort of in the background of the promotional art and 2p is in the foreground uh, which is interesting uh, presumably there will be uh near themed gear as drops from this as well which will be neat um so yeah that's that's getting people quite excited and hot and bothered at the minute and i think that's pretty much it at the time of recording as i say what as we're recording this the fan fest and the the various conferences are still going on so do check on uh novacrystalis.com for the very latest they've got all the trailers and screenshots and stuff there so that's a great place to find out a bit more but uh, yeah don't know if all this is enough to tempt me back at the moment but it's certainly sounding very interesting again they're getting a bit experimental and trying some new things which is good rather than settling into a, a rhythm of doing the same thing each time which has always been a real strength of uh, yoshida and his team but uh, yeah looking quite exciting for now and even if i don't play it myself i'll probably get to experience it vicariously via my wife who is still playing very actively so all right enough of that uh, what have you got on the docket for us today oh let's see here um well I did notice that um, we got a couple more tidbits of information about that new Image Epoch game that might mm. be coming around. Yes. Um, mainly that there's going to be an official reveal of the title on February 9th, so that's coming up relatively soon. Yep. Next Saturday, to be exact. Um, and there's kind of been some leaks of information in that apparently it's going to be a VR title. Yeah, that's um, interesting. And thematically, the two important things to the game are cats and motor and motorcycles. <laughs> okay. I don't know if the cats are on the motorcycles, but cats and motorcycles. So we will see what the old image Ekbok folks have in store for us involving cats and motorcycles on mm -hmm. February 9th. Yes. So <laughs> keep an eye open. It looks like they're quite keen to do an English version as well, like from the start mm -hmm. of, of, of development they, they're, they're quite keen to get a western version out as well which is good yeah um, well i think after there was so much um backlash back in the day because we never got um i keep wanting to say stella glow but that's the one we did get um mm -hmm. oh no i can't remember the name of the series there's a series of three three strategy rpgs they did um the name of which is escaping me right now and we got one and two in the west but never three Oh, okay. And ever since that happened, there's kind of been a big, like, you know, the Image Epoch fan community has always been pretty, pretty vocal. Um, <laughs> you know, so so we did manage to get Stella Glow, which was kind of a spiritual successor to that series, which was great. Um, and we get a lot of, we have gotten a lot of their stuff in the past, so I, it, I usually kind of take it as a given. I mean, we did even get Time and Eternity, and that was the most Japanese game possible. Yes. Yes, and everyone hated it except me. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it too. I just yeah. didn't be. I didn't play it all the way through, but mm -hmm. I thought it was really neat. Um, 
What else? I guess, I mean, the big news for us, right? Uh, Trails of Cold Steel 3. Get yes. localized. Finally. Yes. Uh, yes. So, as as a lot of people expected, this is coming via New America rather than Exceed. Uh, however, they did reveal at, uh, what was it, PAX South, the most recent one, I think? Uh, they yeah, did I a think big, so. They did a big panel there to, to discuss this and sort of lay a few concerns to rest. Um, so, they've brought on board a bunch of people from uh, who are... Uh, formerly from XC to help with the translation. Uh, one of those was uh, Hatsu, Brittany Avery, but unfortunately she's had to step down due to ill health um, and uh, apparently the curse of the Trail series, which seems to affect at least one person on the development team every game. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's that's a real shame because uh, Trails has always been uh, her baby in in the West. So it's a, it's, it's a real shame that she's not going to be able to uh, contribute to it as much as she wanted to. She, she's not ruling out a bit of um, a bit of work on it, but uh, she's had to step down from sort of the active role she was originally intending to play, which is a oh, bit of a shame. A shame. But um, there are some other uh, former exceeders and people who've worked on the series in the past still working on it as well. So um, chances are it's it's it, it, it's going to be a they're serious about doing this properly. So anyone That's who is uh, who still has worries after Ease Eight, I mean. Just, just wait and see what happens. I think, I think they know what they're doing. So, yeah. Um, what else we got? Uh, Giga Wrecker. Um, a couple, couple months ago, in a previous episode, uh, we had talked a little bit about um, Game Freak. They had a game called Giga Wrecker. Oh yes, yes. Which was, um, it was on Steam. I think it is available currently on Steam. Um, and they have now announced Giga Wrecker Alt. Um, which is for consoles. So PS4, Xbox One, and Switch are getting this new fully enhanced version of Giga Wrecker, um, which is once again by Game Freak, which are the Pokemon people. But this is yeah. uh, this is a title they've developed kind of outside of Nintendo, outside of uh, Pokemon. <laughs> and it's just a really interesting-looking side-scroller with a lot of um, exploration and physics heavy gameplay where you can kind of just destroy the entire environment and like yes. let it let it tumble around you um looks like a lot of fun um it looks like rising star is going to be involved and uh limited run has already been signed on to do a physical pressing of the ps4 and switch versions mm-hmm. so this is definitely one to keep an eye out for i really like um I really like Game Freak as a developer, and that's not just coming from a position as a Pokemon fan, but like their earlier stuff is really cool too. Um, you know, uh, Shockman or what was the name? Pulse Man. They made a game for the Mega Drive. It was an incredible side scroller, and it never came west. But it was really, really good. Um, they had a really interesting game on the Super Nintendo as well, which was a a side scroller, but it also had like turn-based combat. Okay. I'm having I'm having trouble thinking of names of games today for some <laughs> reason, but uh, Game Freak has a really interesting history of of really unique games with interesting mechanical wrinkles. Um, you know, there's more to them than just Pokemon. So I'm really really keen to get my hands on this. I'll definitely be ponying ponying up for that physical copy on the Switch for sure. Yeah, yeah, cool. Sounds good. And yeah, yeah, I bet they're eager for the opportunity to spread their wings a bit as well. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Okay, uh, other stuff. Uh, we got Idea Factory International has announced that Moero Chronicle Hyper, which is the revamped version of uh, Moe Chronicle, um, that they were porting to Switch. That is coming west in spring of this year. Uh, it's going to be digital only, uh, which is a bit of a shame, but um, it, it is coming west to Switch, which is nice. Um, so, um, not a huge amount to say about that, but yeah, it's, it's just good news that they sort of sort of did that before anyone asked for it really um mm-hmm. which is nice i haven't actually played the vita version yet but i know a lot of people who really enjoyed that so it will be uh it'll be good to sort of broaden the audience for that a bit without having to import it from um play asia or somewhere actually having a an official western version mm-hmm. will be good i was just saying i'm not necessarily convinced that a physical version might not happen eventually a lot no. of these limit lim- limited press houses end up signing on with these people after the digital version's been around for a while so yeah yeah and i mean idea factory is is sort of very open to the idea of collaborating with other people because they they did that recent port of fairy fencer f to switch in collaboration with Ghostlight. again that didn't have a, a physical release but um yeah, there's there's nothing ruling out that possibility of them working with other people, and that, so that that would be good to see in the future. But uh, for now, the plan is to release it digitally in spring 2019. So, um, other news: Nintendo announced that they are completely scrapping what they've done on Metroid Prime 4, starting again, and getting Retro Studios involved this time. So, um, this was pretty significant, really, because it's it's a sign that Nintendo really wants to get this right. Um, and uh i mean one might question why they didn't bring on retro studios in the first place if they wanted to make sure of that but i don't know <laughs> it's difficult to wonder what the what the exact situation with that would be but presumably what was what was already in the pipeline wasn't good enough or what they expected or something like that so it's yeah it's pretty significant for a whole game to be restarted after it's been worked on and teased Mm-hmm. several times um so yeah that obviously means it's going to be a bit later than it was originally expected but i think that was always going to be one of those games that was going to be it it'll be out when it's done sort of situation so yeah well as the yeah. great miyamoto said a delay a delayed game is only delayed for a little while but a yes. bad game is bad forever so yes absolutely so in the meantime people are hoping that there's going to be a metroid prime collection for switch uh, so no news one way or the other on that at the moment um but yeah they'd be crazy not to they would be absolutely crazy not to because they, they know there's demand for it people will buy it and yeah the, the switch I is certainly a, would a good platform for it as well so um other nintendo news they've said that they've given a really vague teaser of an announcement which is that they're they're announcing something that's going to make a lot of people very happy apparently yeah i um, saw that <laughs> and and suited for the online multiplayer i think they mentioned too yes it's gonna be yes. network suitable or whatever however they phrase that yeah um so i mean there's a whole lot of conjecture going going around about that i mean the they make a lot of people very happy everyone is of course jumping straight to uh mother three uh, uh but that doesn't really fit with the online thing as well. So the the other possibility there is something like um, F Zero. That's or, that's where my brain went immediately. Yeah, everyone's been clamoring for a new F Zero forever, and what what would suit network play better than a great racer? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we don't know what's going to happen with that yet. But they they have teased that. So that, that obviously they've whipped everyone up into a frenzy over that. But it'll be a while before we find out what is going on there. Um, okay, anything else you want to bring up? 
Uh, just that, um, you know, we talked about Dragon Marked for Death last week, last mm-hmm. on our last episode. Um, currently available digitally. It's getting some really good, uh, getting some really good press. Apparently, it's quite good. And we do now have a release date locked down for the physical copy, which. Um, as we talked about in the previous episode, the digital version you have to make a choice and buy one one of two packages um, with that includes two of the four characters, and then make uh, a choice to buy the other characters as DLC. Yes. Um, if if you're patient and you wait for the physical version, which is more money, obviously, but it is all four characters as well as a season pass for all the DLC, um, as has been kind of a popular method on the switch lately and that's coming march 26th yes in the west yes and it says that's for north america and europe um so last time i checked there was no means of pre-ordering the european version yet but uh hopefully that will come along soon um who is it that's publishing it is it it's nighthawk i think isn't it uh yes it's the same people who did um azure striker gunvolt yeah yeah so yeah so i mean that that didn't have any problems with uh with getting distributed in europe so yeah, hopefully that will show up in a week or two. So, anything else? Uh, I don't think so. Um, you had posted something about Outrun, the Sega Ages. Oh, yes. Uh, I can't remember why I posted that. Let me just have a look. <laughs> well, Outrun is available on the Switch yes, now. Yeah, <laughs> Outrun, Outrun <laughs> is, is available now. I think, um, yeah, this was an, an interview posted by a site called Gear Nuke. Um, Oh yes, I remember what it, what it was now. Yeah, the this this interview by this site Ginyuk, who I've, I've not heard of before, but uh, they posted quite a good interview uh, with uh, Yosuke Okunari, and the uh, probably the most interesting thing to come out of it was the fact that they were interested in localizing titles that haven't previously been translated. Oh, um, so uh, yeah, so that's that, that's that's quite exciting. So. Um, Okanari cites the example of uh, Monster World 4 for the Sega Vintage Collection 3, which hadn't previously been released outside of Japan. Um, And uh, his quote was, This title ended up with translation quality which wouldn't have been possible to have back in 1994 when this game first released. In the future, we may try localizing titles which had never been translated if we can draw a reaction. So, Consider um, a reaction drawn. Yeah, so if you want something, make sure you say so, basically, because that could uh, that could give us all sorts of interesting stuff coming west for the first time. Um, these these Sega Ages ports are, are are pretty cool from what I've seen. I've I picked up the Thunder Force Four one recently, uh, which is a reasonably straightforward port of Thunder Force Four from the Mega Drive, but I mean it works really nicely on Switch. It plays well. The Fantasy Star port is really good because it's got some nice quality of life features in there like the auto map and being able to display your stats on screen all the time as well as navigating through the dungeons. Uh, Outrun's supposed to be good even if it does lack the tilty tilty cabinet mode from the 3DS version which I'm quite sad about. Um, I think there's a version of Sonic as well. Uh, Not sure what they've done with that specifically but uh, yeah, it seems to have been quite well received as well. So yeah, um, looks like they're serious about bringing us some stuff that we haven't seen before which is very exciting rent a hero the mega drive version of rent a hero yeah that that would be great yeah so that's all good all right i think we've probably covered all the things we want to talk about there for now so let's take a short break and then we'll come back and talk about what we've been playing recently so see you in a moment (laughs) 
Welcome back. For our second segment, we'd like to talk about what we've been playing recently. So, what have you been playing recently, Chris? It's going to be a short one for me. Uh, I haven't really been playing anything new that I haven't already talked about. Just still diving deep into Fist of the North Star, mm-hmm. uh, Lost Paradise, and I've been kind of... Uh, a new season started on Diablo 3, so I've been playing a lot of Diablo 3 again. Yep. Um, but the first new thing that I haven't really talked about on the cast yet is Gun House for the Vita. Ah, Um, yes, you were very enthusiastic about this, so please infuse away. Yeah, so um, Gun House is a really weird puzzle game um, by Necrosoft Games. Now, the only thing I'd ever played by Necrosoft before is a game called Oh Dear, which is... um, It's available, I think, as a PlayStation Mini, back when those were a thing. Mm -hmm. I, I don't even think you can get it anymore. Maybe it's available on cell phone. But Oh Dear was essentially a riff on like the classic like 16-bit driving games like Outrun and stuff like that. Oh yeah, I remember that. I remember hating it as well. Yeah, I re- <laughs> and you're in a station wagon, and the whole idea is just like you have to get to Grandma's house, and there's just deer in the road, and like hitting the deer <laughs> adds to your time or whatever. Or, or whatever. <laughs> um, and it was noteworthy because they got the composer for. Streets of Rage Three, yeah. Who is uh, who is not um, the guy who did Streets of Rage One and Two, mm-hmm. um, but he's a different composer. But it was noteworthy because they got kind of this classic sixteen-bit composer guy to do original music for it, and so there was a kind of a big hullabaloo about it. And they're kind of an interesting developer because mm-hmm. all their stuff kind of is just irreverent. It has kind of an interesting visual feel. Um, from a design standpoint, they really favor this kind of muted color palette. So all their yeah. games have kind of a very distinct and like instantly identifiable look. Um, so Gunhouse is kind of their take on a classic drop puzzle game. Um, mm-hmm. It is available on mobile phone, which I think is where it started initially. Um, um, you can get it on the Vita, PS4, uh, and the Switch. I have it on the Vita because I ended up getting the physical version from Limited Run a while ago. Um, yeah. So the basic idea behind it is it's a hybrid of uh, certain tower defense mechanics with a drop puzzle game. So okay. the puzzle section is on the right side of the screen. Um, the There's a kind of a physics wrinkle to it in that the blocks always... F- are filling the screen so you can't lose it's not like a block puzzler like tetris where you lose if the screen fills um yeah. the, the the actual puzzle is always full and when you mm-hmm. when you match blocks and make them go away they, they just, it just fills again it drops from the top right so sort of sort of bejeweled style yeah mm-hmm. um so what you have to do is uh puzzle fighter 2 turbo style the idea is to match blocks up in blocks of four, six, eight, whatever, uh, whatever even number. And then if you do that, they'll combine into one large block. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, then what happens is you either swipe that block to the left if you can, or the right if you can. If you swap that block to the left, that block becomes a gun, uh, a turret on the left side of your house. If you swipe that block to the right, it becomes a special move that you can deploy. And the game, and the game works in cycles. So you get, I believe it's 20 seconds to work on the puzzle. And then your house closes up 
and then there's a wave of enemies. And then you have to fire the guns and deploy the special moves that you've saved up by making the puzzle blocks match to destroy the bad guys that are trying to attack the house. <laughs> so you go back and forth between doing this. The larger the blocks you make, the better the guns you make. Um, if you make one gun and then you can keep if you can keep making blocks of the same color, you can hammer more ammo into that gun during that round, making that mm -hmm. gun more effective for the next wave of enemies. Yeah. Um, then at the top of the screen, there's a uh, a section that shows what type of color they'd like you to match for an immediate bonus. So you can do whatever you want, but if you match the one they're specifically asking for, that gun will be twice as powerful as if you were doing oh, okay. just whatever you wanted. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of a storefront. Enemies drop money, so you can buy new guns, you can upgrade your guns, upgrade your health and shields. Um, and it basically just goes on infinitely. <laughs> like, you can just keep playing, and it just keeps uh, generating new levels, new waves for you. Um, and there's all the guns are, like, goofy. So, uh, like, one gun shoots, like, carrots, and one gun shoots, like, skulls that, like, bite the bad guys and explode. <laughs> And they all have radically different effects. So, like, one gun shoots boomerangs. The uh, the gun that shoots skulls that I just mentioned, it does damage, but in a delayed fashion. So, like, yeah. the, the skulls that shoot out of the gun don't actually do damage until they explode. So, they, the, right. the skulls shoot out, chomp onto the enemies to slow them down for a little bit, and then explode. So, it's all about experimenting with, like, the different effects of the different guns and kind of seeing what method works right for you and, you know... The, there's also objectives that the game will throw at you that you can try to complete for bonus money for the shop and uh, and trophies if you're playing on a platform with achievements or whatever. So it'll mm -hmm. be like, um, use the dragon gun to kill five enemies in one round or something. And you can so you can also try to aim to satisfy these objectives to help you progress with money in the shop faster. Um, I love this game <laughs> like obs <laughs> like obsessively. Um, I've been I pretty much just play it before work every morning for like 15 minutes, but it, it's just super addictive. It's just oh, a good cool. it's a good puzzler. It really is. Mm. The, the music is really catchy. Uh, the designs are just so different because once again, Necrosoft has a really kind of different approach to character design and, and color palette. So it doesn't really look like anything I've ever played before, which is part of the reason I'm enjoying it so much. Yeah. Yeah, it's just great. It's a really cool fusion of two interesting genres, and it, and it plays well. Um, you know, cl classic, easy-to-pick-up, hard-to-master gameplay, which is usually mm. the most addictive formula. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this yeah, this was the one I thought it was. This is one with this sort of... It's almost like a sort of pastel-y color scheme, isn't it? It's like, yeah. it a very, mm -hmm. very distinctive look to it. Yeah. Um, but it's... Um, yeah. Yeah, it looks, it looks really nice. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, that just sounds like a really weird combination of mechanics that works really nicely. So yeah, yeah, yeah I'll have to have to have a look at that. It's it's, it's caught my eye a couple of times. Um, it's, I, I think the logo looks like something else that I like. Oh, um, uh, okay. But I, I I can't remember what it is. So so it's, so it's caught my eye for that reason a few times, and I, I've seen the graphics and I thought, oh, that looks cool. But it would be perfect to, to have on the Switch. It really would. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'll have to I'll have to check that out. Is that all you've been playing recently then, aside from Diablo and uh, 
What was the other yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Fist of the North Star for sure. Fist of the North Star, that's it, yeah. Which has been fun because I've gotten to the point now where I have access to the uh, the hostess and club management mini game. Ah, yes, yes. Um, me being yes. a Yakuza novice. The, the true novice. Yakuza game starts here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like I said in the prior episode, I've never really gotten into a Yakuza game before, so mm-hmm. I've never experienced like the hostess managing minigame. Oh, and I had yeah. no idea that it was um, kind of a bit of a puzzle game in disguise. Uh-huh. Um, you know, str- so I guess, I don't know how it works in other games, but in, in Fist of the North Star, it's kind of an active real-time thing where you kind of have a sky a bird's eye view of the club and the guy and the guys come in they sit down the guys have their preferences like do you like a cute girl a beautiful girl a strong girl i think there's one other one Mm -hmm. and um you have your hostesses with their stats you have to pay attention to whether or not they're tired from working or not (laughs) and then match them up with the appropriate guys yeah um and this all happens in real time so you've got to like reactively being like assigning these girls watching their energy levels it gets kind of hectic but it's really addictive the the hoister stuff is kind of interesting because they've they've kind of developed and uh, iterated on that and done it slightly differently in all of the yakuza games because in in the in the original one uh it was basically it was basically just a dating sim you weren't actually running the club you were just going in and meeting girls and you had to say the right things to them to build up their affection meter, and then you get text messages from them, and that would lead to side quests and that sort of thing. But as as the series has gone on, that side of things proved to be so popular with people that it's it's just they've just continued to build on it with each new installment. So yeah, it's really interesting to see uh, to, uh, that they've they've gone quite so far with it in Fist of the North Star, definitely. But yeah, it's it's always a very popular part of those games. So uh, glad to hear that they've incorporated that into uh, into a spin-off. So yeah, it's it's really cool. <laughs> I haven't you know I haven't gotten too far into it because uh, I discovered I didn't know this was kind of a regular part of these um, you know the the Yakuza games and now Fist mm. of the North Star. But I didn't realize that it's pretty standard for there to just be an open world version. Like once oh, yeah. you, once you beat the game, you can just be free to enjoy the side content. So yes, once I yes. found out that was a thing, I'm just pretty intent on hammering out the story. Yeah, and and then I'll go back to do all this crazy stuff. Yes, but, um, I mean yeah. it's great to drive around uh, drive around the desert in your dune buggy looking for new hostesses for your. <laughs> Um, while listening to super monkey ball yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 that 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 has always been a thing in in, in yakuza so this the, the like the side stories have always been sort of almost as much of an attraction as the main story in a lot of cases so um they put that mode in there specifically so that you could enjoy the side stories without feeling like you're leaving the main story hanging um and there's always so much to do that is, isn't necessarily sort of side quests even. Like Yakuza 3 had an incredibly in-depth Mayong simulation in there that a lot of people spent a lot of time on, if you ever understand Mayong, which I do not. <laughs> <laughs> I have um, friends who do, and they keep promising that they're going to show me how to play, oh, but I'm, ter- I'm terrified of it. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a terrifying game. I do not understand it in the slightest. Yakuza 3 actually has some quite good documentation on it that explains it, but I read all of that, and I, was still like, I still have no idea how to play this game oh yes so i i will revisit those games at some point i have most of them on my shelf at this point so i i'm I'm waiting to see those um those ps4 remakes of of yes the the later ones to come out yeah Uh, because yakuza 5 i think didn't get a physical release 
um here or in america i don't think so i'm quite keen to have a copy of that in particular because i've got all the other ones on either ps3 ps2 or ps4 at the moment so yakuza 5 is the only one i don't actually have a a disc copy of so i really want the one that's sent in in ancient japan that's the one oh yes yes the one i want the most yeah, well, I mean, you never know these days. I mean, that was that was always the one game that people thought, oh, no, we'll never get that one. But I, I think these days we're a lot more likely to actually see that over here, especially if... Because Sega seems pretty switched on to the fact that there is a significant Western fan base for Yakuza now. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah so they, they would be foolish not to do that at this point. So we'll just have to wait and see, I guess. All right, um, so what have I been playing? I've been playing three things mainly. Um, I will start with Ace Combat 7 oh, yes. uh, because I've, I've now finished that, uh, or finished the, the campaign anyway. There's, there's plenty more you can go back and unlock, and there's a multiplayer mode that uh, I don't have PS Plus at the moment, so I can't try that out. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's very much an Ace Combat game, which uh, everyone is very happy about because... Um, the last one to release ace combat assault horizon people complained that it, it didn't feel enough like ace combat so they're very much back on form uh both from a sort of mechanical and narrative perspective so it's set set back in the land of strange reel which um as you said to me off uh, off mic a while back is uh, surprising that that land is still standing at all with the number of wars it's been through by this point. <laughs> it really is <laughs> constant conflict yeah, so so at the time of Ace Combat 7, so far it's been hit by an asteroid. There's a country that blew itself up with nuclear bombs so they didn't have to deal with anyone else anymore. Um, <laughs> there have been several several wars, um, including mega weapons designed to shoot down asteroids and satellites. Um, there's a satellite nearly fell on a city. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it's just ridiculous. And Ace Combat 7 thoroughly embraces all of that ridiculousness. Um, because it's the first one for quite a long time, it's quite interesting to see um, how the the kind of in-game technology is advanced. Mm. Because Ace, Ace Combat 7 is very much a story about modern war and about how uh, technology and automation and stuff can be very dangerous. Um, the the cool thing about the Ace Combat series is it's 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 always it's never been a sort of gung ho macho military action thing. It's it's always been a very sort of thoughtful story about war. Yeah, it's uh, a very it, Japanese it, approach, really. I think yeah. Metal, Gear, Metal Gear is the same way. There's yeah, no it's, narrative it, in Metal Gear that's like war is awesome. Be out yeah. there, do war. It's always like you're doing war to end all wars because war is terrible. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, Ace Combat has always been, yes, you get to fly these awesome planes, but you are flying those awesome planes because you always have already have access to those awesome planes and someone has something that's maybe slightly better and a bit more dangerous than what you've got. So you should probably go and deal with that before they do anything unpleasant with it. Um, so, yeah, Ace Combat 7, um, there's a lot of stuff to do with, like, uh, automated production and drones and stuff. So, like, in an early mission, uh, you encounter this um, this flying thing, and the first time it comes up, the music goes all scary, and there's, like, sort of choirs singing in Latin in the background, and the only thing it says on your head-up display for it is just unknown, and it's terrifying. Um, <laughs> but it turns out it's, 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 it's this drone, which is this sort of an experimental thing at that point. And as the story advances, you start seeing more and more of these things. And there's this giant airborne carrier thing that shoots out drones and has lasers on it and this massive electromagnetic shield. And yeah, it's it's insane. It's fantastic. And there's, there's, there's a brilliant sequence towards the end of the game where 
Um, part of what is going on in the background is um, so sort of you're flying a mission, and as as you're flying that mission, you start seeing little glitches in your plane's head-up display and stuff. And by the end of the mission, you're like all all radio transmissions and electronic devices have just been completely corrupted because while you were flying this mission it turns out that both sides in the conflict were trying to shoot down each other's satellites and succeeded but they blew up uh, the satellites in such a way that all the debris promptly went and took out most of the communication system for the whole planet which plunged the whole planet into sort of communication darkness so you have a really interesting few missions where you're just there with your squadron and your commanding officer is just like well shit i have no idea what we're doing right now because oh, i can't talk to anyone um and so you have to you, you, you there you've got these few missions which is like um well we should probably try and get here because there's other people we know there and you get there and it's complete anarchy and there's people blowing each other up and yeah so so the <laughs> the sort of final conflict in that is is sort of complete chaos around the world brought about by all this technology and stuff and it's it's just a really cool story that is very modern very um it's it's topical without being preachy about it which i think is really important and it just really gets you thinking about sort of modern conflict and modern war and so on and the actual gameplay is just really really satisfying as well it's classic ace combat so it's a, a blend between sort of um more forgiving uh, flight sims and a, a few realistic dynamics in there so you can do things like you can do realistic maneuvers in your plane like you can stall your plane and you can do things after that and you can do aerobatic maneuvers and such like but it also doesn't force you to uh, sort of don't turn too hard because otherwise you might black out because that's no fun you what you want to be doing 90 degree turns inside uh, inside canyons and stuff while mm -hmm. firing 15 missiles at, uh, at people at once it's no fun so, yeah. if you don't feel empowered you can't be yeah, reminded yeah. of your human weakness <laughs> yeah 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 a a ace combat has always been about uh, sort of you, you sitting in your cockpit and feeling almost invincible because i mean the, the the one area where it really does not pay any attention to realism whatsoever is in like your your plane's weapons loadout so like a real plane can carry maybe two bombs and two missiles in ace yeah. combat uh your plane is typically armed with about 120 missiles and uh 64 bombs so <laughs> <laughs> so you just you're just out Sounds there legit yeah you're just out there flinging missiles at all and sundry and just yeah it's 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 just so satisfying and yeah um there's also a vr mode in there as well which i've given a try um it's exclusive to playstation vr at the moment so uh obviously there's no vr on xbox but they're, they're, it's it's exclusive to psvr for a year i think uh so next uh, year okay. P P pc players will be able to play it on on vive and oculus as well but at the moment it's just psvr um it's really good really really good um oh, yeah. tell me more yeah there's only three missions at the moment uh but those three missions kind of give a good idea they're, they're pretty representative of the different aspects of the ace combat experience so the first one is uh sort of a high altitude dogfight. so you're sort of way up in the clouds and sort of fighting things and yeah you can dive down and go near to the to the ground if you want to but most of the action is up in the sky then the second one is um, your base is being attacked, so you're, you're taking off while there's stuff exploding around you and things crashing down from the sky and that sort of thing. And then you have to do low-level ground attacks on assault troops that are coming towards your base and so on. So that's very low-level and um, 
it's sort of giving you a real feel of, of of speed looking out the cockpit and sort of seeing the detail on the ground whizzing past you at high oh, speed that that's so that's, cool. that's really really convincing um and then the third one is um kind of a hybrid it's mostly focused on air-to-air combat again but you're you're flying above a mountain range so there's lots of flying in and out of the clouds sort of dipping in and out of cloud cover and using that for stealth and weaving around the mountains and that sort of thing so yeah those the, between those three missions you get a good idea of all the different ways you can experience it and and just experiencing in vr it works really really well so they've they've set it up so that um the part of the head-up display floats in front of you regardless of which direction you're looking so you can see how fast you're going and how high you are oh, okay. um but then the rest of it is projected where it would be in the real aircraft so things like the the pitch ladder showing whether you're pointing up and down and that sort of thing and the compass those are actually on the aircraft's head-up display rather than mounted on your helmet um the radar screen isn't floating in the corner of the screen like it is in the in the regular game it's actually where it would be in the real aircraft mm. same for your weapons laid out and stuff so you, so you actually have to look around the cockpit and see what's going on and look at your different instruments and so on i think they've got more instruments that are actually working in the vr cockpits than they have in the in the main game as well so like oh, you can okay. you can look at your analog instruments and they're all working and stuff as well so Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's really cool, and it's it, it feels very much like you're sitting in that cockpit, which is sort of been been a lifelong dream of mine to sit in the cockpit of something like an F eighteen Hornet and something like that. And this this is this is the closest I'm ever going to get to it, but it's it's very convincing and very very enjoyable. That's awesome. So when you play regular Ace Combat, I mean, obviously you have to play the VR mode in first person but do you play first person cockpit view or do you play like the third person behind the plane no i i i play in in first person cockpit view in the standard game as well um i've i've kind of gone back and forth a bit on this over the course of the different installments so i think ace combat 4 and 5 on ps2 there's a, there's a first person mode that doesn't have the 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 cockpit there so it's just your head up display and the view outside mm-hmm. and on the on the ps2 games because of the resolution it was a bit easier to play that way um but because we've got such high resolution on the ps4 um yeah you you can very practically play with the cockpit in front of you now um and it, it just gives each plane a nicely different feel as well because all, all of these cockpits have been modeled really really lovingly and oh that's so cool it, it just means that each plane you've got just feels very different just to just to look at i mean i i don't know enough about aerodynamics to sort of talk about how 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 differently they handle really but um certainly it's just just sitting in a different cockpit and having different instruments in front of you and different canopy struts around you makes it uh, makes it feel like you're you've unlocked something worthwhile in you when you when you get to uh, get to try something new mm-hmm. so that's really cool um I, i'm in the process of writing up a series of articles on that on moe gamer at the moment so feel free to read those if you want to find out a bit more um second thing i've been playing is dynasty warriors 8 extreme legends definitive edition mm-hmm. uh which yes, is the please. recent uh switch release of dynasty warriors 8 uh which includes the extreme legends expansion and includes all the dlc that was released for both the base game and the expansion so um yeah it is the definitive edition aside from not having a physical version which is a shame but you know um it's also an old game so i understand um yeah it's really fun really really super fun uh having a lot of uh, a lot of enjoyable times with it it's very interesting to compare and contrast with warriors of rochi uh which i'm playing for my video series at the minute so warriors of rochi is a fairly uh bare bones no frills experience um 
whereas Dynasty Warriors 8 um, is very much sort of in the Hyrule Warriors mold in that there is so much content there, mm. it will take you ages to get through it. Currently, I'm just playing the story mode. Um, I think the, 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 the meat of the game for a lot of people is in this mode called Ambition Mode. Oh uh, yeah, which, so what is this? I watched a trailer and they were, for the newer edition you're playing and they were like, expanded ambition mode. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I bet it was so, big enough in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so in ambition mode, what you're doing is you're you're basically trying to build a, a town and a temple. And the ultimate goal of it is to basically make something so awesome that the emperor comes to visit you and goes, good job. Um, <laughs> but you you go about doing that by uh, participating in various battles and the different types of battles you do uh, will provide you with different things so some some will provide you with resources that will let you build new stuff some will let you uh, sort of conquer areas and bring people into your town um, and uh, other ones will be for sort of recruiting additional officers uh, that you can then have as your bodyguards um, so yeah, so it's like I, Atelier Mereru, but with murder instead, <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead of making things for nice people. <laughs> um, yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> I, I haven't really uh, dipped into that yet, but uh, I know that that is a substantial one, and there's, there's a significant part of the game that you, you just don't experience at all if you don't try ambition mode. So like when you're playing story mode, it's very much... Um, you, each episode of the story you have a particular set of characters and it's uh, a very self-contained experience for each each of these chapters which which is cool um because that that's probably that's probably actually the quickest way to play um in this one outside of the challenge modes uh in that it just gives you everything you need to get started plops you into a mission it says right go do this whereas ambition mode you've got all this freedom to do stuff it's a completely different kind of freedom to what you've got in adventure mode in hyrule warriors they say so, looking forward to getting stuck into that at some point but uh, i'm having a lot of fun with the story mode so far um yeah so really satisfying mechanics you've got this interesting um ex weapon system it's called that i believe was introduced in dynasty warriors 7 and so what this does is each character can wield two weapons and switch between them during battle um, they have one weapon from the selection that is called their EX weapon, which is generally their, their iconic weapon from the series. So, for example, Sun Chang Shang has the um, the wheel blades that she always uses. Mm-hmm. That's, her, that's her EX weapon. But at the same time, she can also wield any other weapon if you want her to as well. Um, each of the weapons has one of three elements. They are man, heaven, or earth elements. And uh, those are weak or strong against various things in a triangular arrangement. When you meet an officer who has a weapon that is weak against yours, you get a weak point gauge, a bit like you do in Hyrule Warriors. So you batter that down and then you do a big special attack on them when that's depleted. Um, when there's ones that are strong against yours, um, there's certain skills you can only unlock by defeating enemies uh, that have a weapon that is stronger against yours. So there's kind of incentive to experiment and challenge yourself a bit around the place as well. So yeah, um, a ton to it. Lots of characters to unlock and level. Um, the presentation's really nice. The story scenes look really cool. Um, there's uh, a lot of good humour in it as well, which is something I think the Warrior series has kind of, kind of, started to latch onto as it as it's progressed through. It's. I think it's it got- has to. Yeah, it's been retelling the same story so much over and over for like the past twenty years <laughs> that it's like they they've really got to like explore not taking it seriously in order to have fun yeah. with it new in new ways because it's the same story every dynasty war is the same story 
it's they've been telling the same battles you yeah know. you can only take down the yellow turban rebellion so, so many times <laughs> before they need to throw some other wrinkles in there right and i yeah i think a little bit of self-referential humor is probably the best way to do that yeah and they handle it quite nicely so it's it's not as if it's uh it's not as if it's sort of taking the piss out of what is going on the the sort of overarching story is still handled on like the overview map and it's saying oh so and so did this so and so betrayed this person and so on but then the 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 human stuff tends to come at the personal level so in these sort of pre-battle cutscenes, you'll get the various officers interacting with one another and so like the example i gave you the other day was it was one of the characters showed up to a stealth mission with massive bells on his trousers for example and there's like this whole exchange with them while they're hiding in a bush it's like did you have to come out here with those bells on your trousers it's ridiculous and they end up arguing so loudly that they alert the whole base they're supposed to be attacking and, and that sort of thing so yeah so a lot of fun there um again i'm writing a series of articles about that as i explore the various elements of that over on moe gamer so again check into that uh, as as i proceed through that oh i did one did want to say just back to ace combat for a moment as well i'm going to try and check out the whole series because i've i've now got all of them except the psp games i think so um How many i'm going to be on the psp um there were two i think there's mm. one that's there's one that's definitely in strange reel and i think there's one that isn't um, oh, okay. So this one, <laughs> Assault Horizon was all right. Assault Horizon was actually my first Ace Combat game, and it made me want to play the other one. So Assault Horizon has its values, um, as I will talk about when we revisit that at some point in the future. Um, yeah, finally, then um, the other thing I've been playing is Four Two Eight Shibuya Scramble, which is going to be the next cover game feature on MarioGamer.net. So this is a um, a visual novel by Spike Chunsoft. This was originally released in, I think, 2008 on Wii. Uh, and it was then ported to a couple of other systems. And it came west for the first time last year, I think. Uh, either last year or the year before. I think it was last year. Um, and yeah, it's 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 a super cool game in that it's a visual novel that makes use of um, still photographs and live-action video rather than hand-drawn artwork. Um, and it's... Its main gimmick is that there there are five parallel storylines going on between um, these different characters. There's, so there's an overarching plot where they all sort of cross over and various things happen. But each of these characters also has their own narrative path to follow as well. And each one has a very different character to it as well. So, for example, there's, uh, there's uh, one of the characters is a cop. So his story is very much a sort of hard-boiled cop drama. Um, there is uh, a character who is stuck in a cat mascot costume uh, that is very sort of slapstick humor. Um, there's a guy who's in charge of a pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical, oh, can't speak today, drugs company. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and his, his is very sort of psychological horror. Um, there is a, um, a newspaper reporter who is sort of um, covering most of the events that are happening to the other characters from the outside. Uh, and then there's uh, a guy who's like a, a street punk turned environmentalist who um, is, is is sort of gets wrapped up in all the action from the other stuff almost by accident. So, um, But yeah, it's, it's really interesting from a narrative perspective for that, but also because um, of the way it uses its mechanics as well. The visual novels aren't known for having a lot of mechanics in them, but um, mm -hmm. the, the structure of Shibuya Scramble is such that the choices you make in one character's path will almost certainly affect one of the other characters. Um, and so 
um, you'll get into a situation where like one of the characters will be on the street and they'll run into um, some other side characters uh, and they uh, they might I don't know ask for directions or something and like the if you if you encounter that first you don't know the context of why they're asking for directions uh, so you might well tell them tell them the truth tell them where they're supposed to be going uh, but then you get to another character's thing and you find that these these um, people who you gave directions to earlier on um, were actually trying to kill someone else. So you then have to go back, change that choice and change the consequences of that, which will then allow the other character to proceed down their timeline without getting killed or whatever. So... Mm. I like yeah, the sound there's, of this. Yeah, there's a lot of really sort of each each uh, time block in the game. It's split into hour-long time blocks, and you have to clear all five characters' time blocks to proceed to the next one. Each one of those time blocks is basically a sort of really intertwining puzzle of figuring out uh, which choices are dependent on which other ones and which how the characters relate to each other. And as you progress further, it starts giving you more and more vague hints every time you reach a bad end. Um, and so it sort of suggests what you might want to do, but it doesn't necessarily tell you which character it involves. So you have to figure out um, things from that sort of perspective as well. So, yeah, it's it's a really interesting puzzle as well as telling a really cool story as well. So, um, it sounds it's, great. Yeah, so it's um, it, it's it's a very well-known um title in spike chunsoft's back catalog as well um it's one of um one of their series that they used to call sound novels um which uh is is a phrase i've heard before but i wasn't really familiar what it meant until recently but sound novels was apparently uh, a brand that spike chunsoft did a while back but it's been kind of um it's got more sort of broad application now and a sound novel is basically a visual novel that tends not to include uh speech in it so there's no speech in shibuya scramble it's all text um but it places a very strong focus on creating atmosphere through sound um, oh, okay. and so as you go through there's sort of very uh, very strong use of music throughout it and also a lot of ambient sound as well so along with these these beautiful high resolution photographs that that um depict most of the action you've also got um sort of the ambient sound of where you are and the people wandering around and just like just like subtle things like when you're in when the story is inside a building you sort of hear things like the lights buzzing and stuff like that so there's a very strong focus on uh on that side of things as well and it's um it's not something you necessarily actively think about while you're playing it but if it wasn't there you'd really miss it certainly well it's it's, it's immersive right yeah it's like yeah that's something that's missing from games really in terms yeah. of creating an immersive feeling of being in a place is ambient sound yeah and it's something that's often ignored. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm uh, probably probably about a third of the way through that in the minute so far at the time of recording. So uh, I'm going to be continuing to play that over the course of the next month or so and writing up some thoughts on that on Moe Gamer starting from uh, this week by the time you hear this. So watch out for that. Um, and that's about it for the minute. So aside from the stuff that I am also covering every week on my YouTube channel, but uh, I won't uh, go through all that because there's quite a lot of it now. So just <laughs> know, check you're that machine, out. Man, it's unbelievable. <laughs> just check that out if you want to find out a bit more. So, are we done now? I think so. I think we are. All right. Okay. Let's take a short break, and then we shall uh, we shall say something very controversial. Dun, dun, all right. <gasps> See you in a moment.
Welcome back. Now, it's time for our main discussion of the episodes, and our talking point for today is death to Metroidvania. Kill it. Kill it. Now, um, so, we would like to clarify at this point that we are not saying we would like to kill the genre of games that people tend to refer to as Metroidvania. No, However, I like them. <laughs> yes. Very much. Yes, yes, we both like them very much. However, we would like to very much uh, dispatch with the term Metroidvania. Uh, now, I know you feel particularly strongly about this, Chris, so why don't you launch into uh, why this bothers you? Okay, yes. Um, this is something that I spend way too much time thinking about. Um, I mentioned it once or twice on previous episodes, but uh, my background in terms of education is actually in um, basically uh, media criticism. So I have a master's degree in uh, popular culture studies, which is directed toward kind of... Uh, understanding um, popular culture artifacts, so things like movies, mm -hmm. t television, uh, music, comic books, basically everything that's not considered quote-unquote fine art. Yes. And, and learning, about, learning about them and building kind of ways we can think about these things as cultural artifacts and understand that as people, um, even though these things aren't typically considered fine art, they're a very important part of our cultural history because what mm -hmm. we consume for entertainment defines us as people. Um, so my specific field of expertise in the field of popular culture study is genre study, which is kind of understanding um, basically the way we name, categorize, define, and compartmentalize the different types of media we consume. My yes. specific field of study when I was working on my master's degree was in film. And so I did a lot of my study looking at kind of uh, the superhero film genre specifically and how it had evolved through the ages and the years. And how do we define a superhero movie? What are the things we're looking for? Mm -hmm. So when I think about gaming, I all, my head often goes into this space because it's something I've spent so much time of my life looking at and understanding. So I tend to get really, really agitated when I don't like some of the terminology <laughs> that we use to describe certain genres. And the one that pisses me off the most is Metroidvania. Um, the reason Metroidvania is something I don't like is, be is that in genre studies, what we want to do is when we name a genre or we come up with a title for a category of something, we want that title or that label to communicate basic information about that thing almost instantly. Yeah. Um, and we don't want that label to require a person who comes across it to have a very fine degree of internal knowledge about that thing already. We want it mm -hmm. to serve as kind of an entry point. Um, so I take a lot of issue with using the term Metroidvania as a genre label because it requires the person who comes across that term to, A, have a very open mind because it sounds stupid. Um, B, it requires them to understand a great deal about Castlevania, a great deal about Metroid, mm -hmm. and to understand what castlevania and metroid mean to understand that not all castlevanias are necessarily open-ended <laughs> and to yeah. understand that we're only talking about the castlevanias that are open-ended and mm -hmm. metroid and to understand that 
the game we're talking about has qualities of both some Castlevanias and Metroid. Mm -hmm. Take all that information, pack that up, and then use that information to think about this new game they're talking about. Yeah. Now, in the gaming community, we tend to really, really enjoy labels like that because it takes a lot of knowledge in a very concise way gives it to us and we recognize it because we know what Castlevania is. We know what Metroid is. But really not everyone does. Not every mm -hmm. game where you're going to come across in your lifetime has played Castlevania or Metroid extensively. Yeah. Um, so the example I give, um, which kind of I take, I take things out of gaming, right? Because we're as a game, as gamers, we're a very insular community and we have our own vocabulary and we have this assumed knowledge, right? Part yep. of my biggest gripe that I just described with Metroidvania is it's exclusionary because there's a lot of assumed knowledge there, um, and someone who doesn't have that knowledge can gain real no can gain no real insight at, from a game from the label Metroidvania. Mm -hmm. So the example I always give to people is if you look at films, right? We don't name genres of film based on noteworthy entries in that genre. Yeah. It would be backwards. So I really like Western films. I like to write about them. I like to examine and talk about them. We call Western films Western films because mm -hmm. they are, because they are a type of movie set in the American Wild West. Yeah. That's, that's the label we've come up with. We don't call them, uh, what, what did I write down? Uh, great train robbery stagecoaches. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I'm not going to a great train robbery stagecoach film festival. Yeah. Like, you see how silly that sounds almost instantly. Mm -hmm. So, like, I love RPGs. We all love RPGs. We don't call RPGs Dragon Quest Ultimas. Mm -hmm. And we do call some of them roguelikes. Yes, that's true. And I'm not really into roguelike either, <laughs> based, <laughs> based on this same knowledge, right? Um but in other other genres, it's not common to do this. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, I mean, in other genres, I'm sorry, other other types of popular culture, it's not mm -hmm. common to do this. We don't call all rock and roll like Beatles, Elvis. Yeah, <laughs> it's just not. It's <laughs> it's not an it's not an intelligent or informative way to label a category. Yeah. I think um, another thing that's worth bringing up is is actually something we had penciled in to, to have a, another discussion on, a, on another podcast, but I think it's relevant here as well, is that when we're talking about gaming genres, um, there's something fairly key that we tend to handle a bit differently to other media, which is that gaming genres, we tend to focus on the mechanical aspects of them and mm -hmm. how they're produced and that sort of thing. Whereas when you're looking at film or books or that sort of thing, you tend to focusing more on the on the artistic side of things, the narrative aspect or the thematic content of them as well. It's true. Um, I mean, you 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 can to a certain extent sort of combine the two a bit in gaming. So, for example, when people are talking about Red Dead Redemption Two, they would describe it as a Western game, but they'd also describe it as an open world game or a Rockstar game or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think sort of describing stuff as shooter maps, as first-person shooters, as platform games, as Metroidvanias, as roguelikes, as that sort of thing is much more common than people talking about um, sort of artistic, thematic, narrative content in terms of genre as well. And I sure. think that's that's something that is 
now that we're getting pretty good at telling stories with games it's it's something that i think people need to sort of look at a bit closer mm -hmm. yeah i would agree with you there um we hyphenate right <laughs> so, yeah so uh so red dead redemption is an open world action adventure game that is a western <laughs> yes <laughs> but but like you know going you know all that kind of plays very hand in hand into kind of my major complaints with using metroidvania as a label mm -hmm. so unique to gaming is that we tend to use our genre labels to describe uh, mechanical aspects of that title yes. so metroidvania doesn't describe mechanical aspects of the title necessarily it just says this is like these other games now the extension of that is of course this is like these other games mechanically mm -hmm. but i would rather we utilize a label that openly describes those mechanics mm-hmm a belt scrolling beat em up openly describes the way that game plays. A shoot, yes. a shoot em up actively describes the way that game plays with terminology that's not necessarily exclusive and requires mm -hmm. a great deal of prior knowledge. Yeah. So yeah. with that in mind, I propose the, that we call Metroidvanias, what I like to call them is open structure 2D platformers. Yes. Um, yes, now, I, it doesn't roll off the tongue as nicely as Metroidvania, <laughs> and I think that's part of the reason Metroidvania stuck. Yes, It's yes, because absolutely. it's catchy, it's a buzzword. Yeah. But at the same time, there are some other fairly clunky genre descriptors out there. I mean, like, open world game isn't necessarily particularly... Um, it, 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 it's not a very sort of um, necessarily memorable phrase by itself, but it's been used so much by this point that, that people have become used to it. Um, and so I, th I think, yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it works as a phrase. I tend to use uh, open world 2D platformer to describe sure. Metroidvanias for, for much the same reasons as you're describing there. So, um, and um, yeah, I, th I think one thing that is often forgotten in this discussion as well is that um stuff like metroid and castlevania weren't necessarily where this stuff started even as no well. and so that's it's part of the issue i have with it is why have we decided that metroid and castlevania are the two games yeah so i mean um people who, who know me well know that my background is um in in gaming terms is sort of with um with european home computers I, I got into home computing long before I got into games consoles and things. And if you look back to uh, sort of the early to mid 80s um, and look at games available for platforms like the Atari 8-bit, the Commodore 64, the ZX Spectrum, particularly the ZX Spectrum as it happens uh, is relevant to what we're talking about here. And uh, games that were typically described at the time as just action adventures are pretty much what we now know as Metroidvanias. Um, and so if we think of a, a, a an action adventure from the ZX Spectrum era, probably the most iconic one is uh, Jet Set Willy. Jet Set Willy is a game uh, that pretty much hits most of the notes that we talk about when we talk about Metroidvanias these days, in that you've got a, an open structure map that unfolds from a 2D perspective. It's a platform game. You collect items, you avoid things. There's various sort of prerequisites for getting into different areas of the house according to the actions that you take. Um, and yeah, that, that game, which was very, very influential over here in Europe, is not very well known in the rest of the world. And yet, I, I, I will have to check the actual dates on it, but um, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it may have well have predated Net Metroid. I'm just going to actually look that up now so I'm not 
spouting complete nonsense. Uh, Jet Set Willy came out in 1984. Uh, when did Metroid come out? Metroid came out in 1986. So yeah, Jet Set Willy predates Metroid by uh, two years. Uh, and it was doing a lot of the things that we now know for that genre beforehand. It mm-hmm. was a very influential example in early game development. A lot of people tried to emulate the success of Jet Set Willy with their own action-adventure games, open structure platform games, and that sort of thing. Uh, to such a degree that, like I say, we we, we had a, a genre term for it at the time, which has changed meaning over time. The word action-adventure, everyone knew what you were talking about in the early 80s because it was this kind of game. It was this kind of mm-hmm. game where you could explore from a 2D perspective you could jump on things you could avoid enemies you could maybe get weapons items upgrades all that sort of thing and there, there were a lot of those games around at the time so yeah it's it's just nice to acknowledge some stuff that isn't necessarily talked about quite so much when we use a term like metroidvania yeah yeah like i said it's exclusionary mm-hmm. it's exclusionary and it, and it and it takes away attention from some of the other titles that have contributed to developing it as a genre and as a mechanical style. Um, yes. You know, I, I harp on Wonder Boy a lot when, mm-hmm. when we play, but um, I, I really get angry when people talk about the Shantae series as a Metroidvania because structurally and mechanically, the Shantae games don't feel anything like Metroid or Castlevania. They feel like yeah. Wonder Boy. Yeah. But are we really going to describe Wonder Boy as a Metroidvania? Because Wonder Boy ran pretty parallel with, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, Wonder the original Wonder Boy in the arcades was experimenting with these open levels, larger levels with items for progress fairly mm-hmm. early. Um, you know, Dragon's Trap on the Master System was, you know, and it did come out after Metroid and Castlevania 2, but it was right along there developing some of the, the hallmarks of, of the genre. So, yeah. When we do that from a historical perspective, it's it's almost reductionist to to take away p- power from some of these other titles that have been huge. Um, Falcom back in the day with uh, Faxanadu, yeah, w- was tremendous, uh, clunky and extremely difficult, but also an example of this kind of game with a huge ambitious open structure. Well, I- I mean, there's even there's even like a case for citing stuff like Zelda Two as well, isn't there? Like Zelda well, Two has got very much this sort of element going on as well with mm-hmm. exploring two D levels, and I know it's got the two D overworld map as well. But you spend a significant proportion of time in Zelda Two doing platforming and making sure you have the right items to get past certain areas and all that sort of thing as well. So, but no one ever describes these as Zelda likes. Well, yeah, that's one of the points I wanted to make too. Really, what we what we talk about in these games is a game that transcribes the mechanics of Zelda to a two D platformer. Yes. If you boil down the mechanical hooks that you define a quote unquote Metroidvania with, it's basically a game that has transcribed Zelda to a two D side scroller. Mm-hmm. Think about all the things that define Zelda, the original Zelda to you. An open, an open world that you can explore, items that you find that increase your abilities and then therefore enhance your ability to progress further in that open world, mm-hmm. the ability to backtrack if you want to. It, it, it's, these are the things we consider when we consider this genre. Yeah. So like, going on from that, what are the, what are the bullet points that you consider to be necessary or defining hallmarks of a quote-unquote open structure 2D platformer. For me, the biggest thing is um, obviously the open structure that 
allows you to backtrack. Yes. And encourages you to do so as well. Mm -hmm. um, yes. One of the reasons in recent history I've become so kind of agitated by this was um, uh, Dead Cells. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have been calling Dead Cells a Metroidvania. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I couldn't disagree more because Dead Cells has contained levels. Yes, absolutely. You cannot go back in Dead Cells. Mm-hmm. And so I get really mad when people start throwing the Metroidvania label around um, on titles that possess certain aspects, but not the key aspects. So in Dead Cells, the levels are large and, explore yes. and explorable, but you cannot go back to previous levels in, in, in a run. Um, yeah. And that's a problem because that's the open structure is one of the most defining characteristics of these types of games. Um, you know, back in the day, uh, one of the most popular examples I can think of are games uh, that came out of the Euro scene. Uh, games like Turrican. Yeah. Turrican had large, explorable levels, but each level was a contained level. We don't yes. ever refer to Turrican in the lexicon of Metroidvania-style games because we acknowledge that it had contained levels, and each level mm -hmm. was a unique stage. It did not allow you to backtrack. So yeah. large explorability is not necessarily the only hallmark. It's the openness and the ability to return and transition between areas that really define this for me. Yeah, yeah. I think that 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 is definitely one of the most important things there. And like going right back to Jet Set Willy, like we described, that was a key part of that as well. So a lot of those early action adventures on the early 8-bit computers, a key part of them was as you were exploring you might see part of the room that you're in that you can't get to um and it's sort of like one of the main puzzles in the game would be figuring out how you get from the bit of the room you're in now to the bit of the room you can see but can't reach mm. and very often that's a sort of long and convoluted process that involves exploration and so on i, I think that's for me that's always been a key part of the um of the genre as well sort of right up until sort of more recent games like if we if we think of like castlevania does this quite a lot as well it will sort of put a power up on the other side of a wall and there's seemingly no way to get through that wall you have to find a long way around it and that sort of thing so mm -hmm. yeah that's quite that's quite an important part of it um a lot of people cite uh, sort of the necessity for areas to be gated off by items as a uh, as an important part of, of of this type of genre i i don't necessarily think that's an essential part of it um but i think that is one way that these games can provide a bit of structure uh to the experience um mm -hmm. So, so it's it, it, it's it's not necessarily something that is absolutely a hundred percent needed, but it helps direct people through the experience a bit more. I mean, if if you provide someone with a completely open world and tell them to just just figure it out for yourself, a lot of people are going to get daunted and frustrated because they don't know where to go or where they're supposed to go or what the right order to do things in. It may be that there isn't a right order to do things in, but um, yeah when you have like the structure like something like simply of the night does where as you go through you're gradually defeating bosses unlocking new abilities and that sort of thing um that that works for me but i wouldn't say it's necessarily essential to the experience yeah and for me all that kind of ties into some it's like part and parcel of something that is essential to the experience to me which is some form of character progression yes 
Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be like in Symphony of the Night, we had RPG character progression, experience, levels, stats. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. but some type of character progression. It could be in the form of items. It could yeah. be it could be in the form of abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be in the form of simply power, like gating areas off because the enemies are too strong here, yes. and you have to come back when you're more powerful later. But I do think some kind of gating that's tied to character progression is really important to this genre because because I don't think. I've had this argument with friends many times before in regards to open world games is that you don't really want a truly open world game. No, no. You don't want a game where you can just go anywhere, do anything at any time because that's called real life and it's not satisfying. Like <laughs> g- the g- games are inherently satisfying because they provide you a structure to perform within. Yes. So by having some kind of gating tied to character progression, it's what keeps these games interesting and intriguing from a mechanical perspective because it sets goals for you yeah and i think that's essential but what's not essential is the form it takes yes yes so yeah i mean that that to me is what makes these games up an open structure that allows and indeed encourages backtracking and exploration and whether it takes the form of items, abilities, RPG-style leveling, some form of character progression that acts as a hand-holding device that gradually guides you through where you're to go and what you are to do in this world. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the the Shantae games are actually quite a good example of this. Yeah, they're um, one of the best. Because you've, you've got sort of two real means of progression in Shantae. Uh, one of which is technically optional. So in Shantae, the the optional one is in fact there's three in the original game. If we if we're being picky, so in in the original Shantae, the Game Boy Color version, we've got um, you've got heart containers. So you can get you can gain power by finding heart containers. Most of those are well off the beaten track. It's not like a Zelda game where you get a heart container for finishing a dungeon. In Shantae, you really have to work to find those additional heart containers and increase your maximum life. So that side of things is encouraging you to explore, to look outside of the the sort of uh, the sort of well trodden path that you need to, to to just complete the game. The second thing Shantae has got is the abilities that you do unlock by completing the dungeons, which is the various transformations and dances, and those are the means that things are actually physically gated to you so you you need the elephant to smash blocks you need the harpy to fly over certain things and so on um and then also in shantae you've got you've got smaller things like um the warp squids that you find in there which allow you to quickly travel back and forth again they're not essential to the experience um but they do provide incentive to explore places you might not go normally um and they help you to get around a bit more easily which in turn gives you the incentive to sort of go a bit further afield because you know you'll always be able to get back safely um so yeah shantae is a really good example uh, over the years particularly the first three games um Half Genie Hero kind of, I mean, Half Genie Hero played with its structure a bit more and, and, and it sort of took quite a different structure to the other games as well. It's still got a sense of character progression, but uh, because of the different design of the game's overall structure, it, it, it feels slightly different. And I almost wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily describe that in the same 
genre as what we're talking about here really just because of the way that is split into more discrete levels they're levels that you can revisit certainly but not in the same interconnected way as we're describing with pirate's curse risky yeah. revenge and the original one so i do consider pirate's curse part of this though because pirate's curse does contain is self-contained levels yes but but you can always return to them so yes. like it's it's not relevant to me that the world necessarily be designed as one cohesive world but the openness of that structure to be able to return to those stages is important to me yes yes but shant but um half genie heroes levels didn't feel like open open structure they were more just like levels like there yeah, wasn't I, as much exploration to be had yeah well well half, half genie heroes levels were very much you start at the left make your way to the right i mean yes it was a very indirect route in a lot of cases but it was very much a case of you go through the first area of this level then the second area of this level then the third area of this level then you fight a boss whereas if we look at something like pirate's curse um, that is very much more exploration based. It wasn't yeah. wasn't a sort of linear progression through a series of substages. It was exploring the different routes you could take, finding things that you maybe needed to come back later for with different yeah. items and abilities and that sort of thing. So yeah, that's 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 the key distinction there, I think. Yeah. I mean not to not to discount Half Genie Hero, it's a fantastic oh, game. Oh no, it's a wonderful it, game. But, wonderful but game. it's structurally not part of this overall we're looking at here. Yes. Um, and, and intentionally so. They they made yes. it clear that they were not trying to make that kind of game this time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean that's all I really had about this. I just I I wish we as a community could get to could move towards using labels for genres, not just this one, but other genres too that um provide information about the mechanical structures of the game in the description instead of yes. simply referencing other titles and requiring that prior knowledge i would rather the labels we use be more informative yes no i, th- I think i think that makes a lot of sense and i i'd agree with that entirely i think there's there's a lot of work that people who who want to comment on games whether it's as professional critics or or just people who are blogging about them or just just chatting about them on twitter i think i think we need we're at a stage now with gaming where we need to expand our vocabulary a bit and we need to be able to talk about things without just saying oh this is like so and so we we need to get better at describing things we need to get better at talking about genre we need to acknowledge that um the sort of different appeal elements of games like some people will specifically come to a game because the thematic elements of it appeal to mm-hmm. them rather than the mechanical elements like if we if we take visual novels as an example it's very rare you find someone who just likes visual novels because a bit well i mean largely because visual novels have so few in the way of mechanics in most cases cases like shibuya scramble accepted of course um that yeah, there is no one who is just into visual novels. You get people who like romantic visual novels. You get people who like Eragay. You get people who like Nukigay. You get people who like games that have got um, visual novels that have got actual gameplay elements to them as well, like strategic elements or something like that. So, yeah, it's, I always it's... find this kind of discussion funny too with the anime. Um, yeah, like I, I love anime, but that's such a dumb. Like when I meet people who like anime, it's like okay yeah. yes yes well, that's, that's like saying like i like tv shows yeah because they're great. I, really, oh, I like, oh, like books yeah like, <laughs> I, I like anime okay great well then i'm gonna assume you like those shows about pretty figure skating boys 
like, 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 no, it doesn't mean shit to like anime. Like, yeah, I, I like giant robot anime. I like '90s action anime. Mm-hmm. Like, just because I like anime doesn't mean I want to watch Precure all day. Yeah, well, it, it kind of does, but but <laughs> but but you know what I mean. It's like saying I like music. I like TV shows. Yeah, like, yeah, and I mean, when you think about it, even like the term gamer falls foul of this, doesn't it? It's like, oh, I'm it's a, the worst. I'm a, I'm a gamer. I play games. I, I know this is rich from me coming through the site that has gamer in the title, but yeah, but it's you. It's Moe gamer. You yeah, play Moe games. <laughs> it's very specific. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is definitely something something that everyone needs to work on a bit. I think. I mean, I, I say need. That's very authoritative, isn't it? But uh, yeah, I, I I think in order in order for sort of discussion of stuff to kind of reach a new level and for us to be able to comment on things with with more knowledge and be able to look back on stuff more effectively yeah we definitely need to develop our vocabulary a bit and yeah if we're serious about treating this media form seriously and having others take it seriously um and this has always been my argument is that we need to evolve the way we talk about them to more closely follow suit to the way people have began to talk about other popular culture artifacts um yes i'm not a fan of this way of thinking that we need to think about games in the same way we think about film Mm -hmm. i think they're two totally different things but what we can do is from a historical standpoint understand the way discussion about film has evolved and, and learn from those experiences and those movements in order to make our way of discussing and compartmentalizing the way we think about games clearer concise more intelligent and more informative because we can't open up the field of gaming a media of gaming to be something that people take seriously as a cultural artifact until we can present ourselves in a way where we can discuss and elucidate on it in a better fashion yeah. And it's something I find severely lacking in a lot of modern games writing, is that games writing that's done today is really only relevant to people who are already enthusiastic about games. Yeah. And I've always kind of made it my mission to try to be an ambassador for them to people who may not always understand them. Yes, yes. Um, this has actually been a discussion for a, a good few years now, but particularly with regard to the media. And I think the media has been continually experimenting with how best to handle this. And I, th- I think what we've got at the moment is is a failed experiment to do with... <laughs> um, <laughs> um, back in 2006, uh, there was an article on Esquire.com called The Lester Bangs of Video Games. Um, and the, the the reason I remember this article is not because I read it at the time, but because I remember there being a discussion on the One Up podcast that my brother okay. was involved in at the time. There were the, the, this article came out, and there was a lot of discussion over it. So, the the opening to this article goes: There are still people in America who do not take video games seriously. These are the same people who question the relevance of hip hop and assume newspapers will still exist in twenty five years. It's hard to find an irrefutably accurate statistic for the economic value of the video game industry, but the best estimates seem to be around $28 billion. This was 2006, remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, as such, I'm not going to waste any space trying to convince people that gaming is important. If you're reading this column, I'm just going to assume that you believe video games in 2006 are the cultural equivalent of rock music in 1967, because that's more or less reality. 
Um, and then it goes on to uh, describe that games are a consequential force with meaning and that they reflect the worldviews and sensibilities of their audience. Um, and they go on to talk about this guy, Lester Banks, who I was not familiar with before this discussion came up. But um, so um, it was all to do with uh, sort of discussing um games in a bit more of a cultural context uh and considering the things that make games unique uh like the idea of potentiality so things things always happen the same in films and books Mm -hmm. and that sort of media but games have this unique aspect where things don't necessarily happen the same way whether that's because you take a different route through the story in a multi-route game or if you just don't finish the game if you just Mm -hmm. don't finish a game does that mean the rest of the story didn't happen um and so what uh, What this guy and his squire, uh, Chuck Klosterman, who wrote the original article, what he was arguing was that we needed to look a little bit more about games uh, in this context, uh, acknowledge them as a bit more of a cultural force, uh, looking at the things that the, the unique things that they bring to the table and so on. Um, and so uh, someone from MIT, a guy called Henry Jenkins, he, he was quoted as part of this article. He says uh, that aesthetic criticism exists in this industry, but only as arguments among gaming scholars and game creators. And the gaming industry suffers because of that. There's a very conservative element to gaming because absolutely everything is built around consumerism. Game designers are asking themselves questions about how a game should look and what it should do, but not, not about what the game is supposed to mean. Um and so the reason I say that modern uh, games journalism is a failed experiment in this regard is I think that they've sort of taken this idea to heart, but they've kind of gone a bit too too far, if you see what I mean. So we have we have all these articles about how Halo is representative of toxic masculinity and how God of War is awful because it's got big, muscly, hairy men in it or whatever. And I I, I can see what they're trying to do, and I want to respect it, but I think there's just this sort of... At the moment, we've got this this kind of air of authority from these things that is not so much saying, well, this is what this game might mean. There's a bit too much of the angle uh, that is sort of, well, I think this game means this, and you're wrong if you don't believe that. There's less of a discussion yeah. and more of a, a sort of finger-pointing aspect to it. So yeah. I, I can see what modern games journalism is trying to do. I just don't think the way they're going about it at the moment is really working. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is a discussion for kind of its own discussion for yes, sure. Yes, absolutely. But but essentially what's been done is that um, what's been done now with the way we talk about games has, is kind of an example of what I was just saying I would hope we don't do, which is we've, instead of learning from the way that discussion of film has evolved, what we've really just done is taken this, the tool set used for discussing film and applied it to games in a way that's yeah. not necessarily constructive. Yes. Um, but that's, like I said, I, that's another hour. <laughs> uh, that's another, because this is what I studied for many for many years. So it's kind of a whole nother lecture. Yes. But it, we, we can do better. And better doesn't mean outrage and problematizing everything. Yes. B- but better better means taking a more critical eye, better understanding, 
taking cultural culture and history into account as part of the discussion yeah i think history sure. history is a very important one i think that is very lacking in a lot of uh, modern games writing it's like i it's a, not to blow my own trumpet too much but whenever i write about something i try to bear in mind the historical perspective of something um including the context in which it came out what came before it what the people worked on it did beforehand and also um how this thing looks today because i found a lot of games over the last few years that both from mechanical and narrative and structural perspectives actually work a lot better today than when they first released and that sort of thing is always really interesting to me mm-hmm. and i think that that is one thing that is is sort of missed a bit uh in a lot of modern discussions as well especially when you look back at games that are sort of commonly regarded as quote crap if you think of something that is that was reviewed badly back in the day that that as far as as far as like metacritic or whatever is concerned that is always crap people will people will not necessarily go back to it except in very specific circumstances like near i was gonna say near is the primary example right yeah yeah so so near fabulous game wonderful game art uh, art in gaming absolutely um if people hadn't if people hadn't bothered to go back and look at that if people hadn't bothered to um sort of take a more modern critical eye to that rather than just going on oh the graphics are drab it's not very fun from the original reviews then yeah we would have missed out on a real cultural phenomenon there one of the greatest games ever made yeah yeah like near near is like top 5 of all time for yeah, me yeah definitely it's one of the greatest games ever made yes and I've I've nearly got my wife playing it, so Ooh. keep saying positive things. Just 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 with with the announcement of this new raid for Final Fantasy fourteen, I've nearly got her playing near. So uh, <laughs> fingers crossed. Uh, do you really do you really need to be there to wipe your wife's <laughs> tears away when she I was gonna starts say, playing? I'm going to say we both spend most of our time being sad enough already. I don't know if I need to encourage that, but uh. well, uh, anyway, yes. So I think we've come to some good conclusions there, which is basically do better everyone (laughs) yeah yeah do better start calling metroidvanias open structure or open world platformers um even though i'll never do it because metroidvania is just the word that's in my head so (laughs) do as i say not as i do classic dad quote yeah but i'll try to do better to use it less frequently in the future yeah yeah well, I, I think the broader discussion there is is an important one as well. Just 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 think about the way that we're talking about games and how we can make that better and how we can sort of progress beyond what we've got now. Because there's, I feel like we're sort of almost stagnating a bit at the minute, and there's there's definite steps we can take to sort of improve the way we talk about games and analyze yeah. them and criticize them. So, as you say, there's uh, a good hour more that we could go on about that. Plus, so mm-hmm. let's uh, let's cut that there. Let's let's hold that discussion there. I think we've 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 covered why we we think that uh, Metroidvania needs to die, and uh, well, we hope at least some of you agree. So, as usual, then, would you like to tell people where to find you elsewhere on the internet? Sure. Um, MrGilderPixels.com, um, as well as on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram as MrGilderPixels. That's M-R-G-I-L-D-E-R-P-I-X-E-L-S. Uh, I'm going to be posting a piece I'm pretty proud of on Monday, so uh, keep an eye out. 
excellent stuff. Um, and as I said at the start, you can find me at moegamer.net, uh, which is where most of my articles go up most weekdays. Um, I've also got videos going up on my YouTube channel that you may well be watching this podcast on. Um, most of those are linked on moegamer.net as well, so uh, check those out throughout the course of the week. Um, you can also find my Atari-centric videos at atari8z.wordpress.com. Uh, very soon to be coming to the end of the first cycle uh, around the alphabet of my Atari 8-bit games. That's very exciting. I've actually seen a project through to a sort of conclusion. So that What's will that be like? yeah, it's exciting. It's very exciting. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that will be continuing after we get to Z. We'll be going back to A again and, and starting all over again. So please look forward to that. So, as always, thank you very much for watching and or listening, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game. So be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.